speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast, exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. Welcome back, listeners. This is Eric Arneson, and I'm here today with Alan Drake, a musician, fortune teller, and swamp Gandalf, who, I, who I've been talking to for quite a while online. Uh, hi, Alan. Thanks for being on my show. Oh, no problem, Eric. It's uh, great to be here. Um, so uh, I've, I've been talking to you for, uh, at, I mean, at least a year or so online, probably on uh, the Lunar Cry chat, and... Um, and it's been fascinating because we have a, a, a lot of our topics of interest sort of overlap. But one of the things that you've really sort of uh, focused on is a collection of various fortune-telling skills, such as um, tarot, astrology, geomancy. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the array of your skills there, like what you've been using and what you've been doing? Uh, sure. Uh, for me, I guess it all... Uh Stems from uh, reading tarot. Uh, it was probably the first thing I got into when I was a kid back in the 80s. You know, picked up a Rider Waite Smith deck and was like, uh, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's see what's going on here with these things. And uh, pretty much instantly fell in love with that mode of interacting with the cards, asking questions, contemplating questions. You know, what do I ask this, this oracle? It was a uh, uh, interesting uh, development that occurred early on. With, you know, the development of the question itself is something that is uh, uh, special in fortune telling. Right. Yeah. And uh, and from there, uh, spent years just focusing mainly on uh, using tarot and sigils. I was pretty happy with that. Um, some events kind of popped up in my life and uh, got me interested in. Uh, astrology a couple of years ago so I started studying astrology discovered traditional astrology fell down that rabbit hole pretty hard and for the last two, two and a half years I've been cramming real, real hard on a bunch of traditional astrology material and uh, really getting into uh, the relationship between uh, the images and astrology and the images of tarot and uh, the musicality of astrology and how that relates to music since I'm a musician, it's uh, yeah. present form. Those are both uh, actually really fascinating subjects. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the intersection between the images in astrology and the images in tarot, because there's there's a lot of fascinating stuff that goes on there, um, especially when it comes to like uh, how the Golden Dawn and some of the 19th century um, magicians were assigning like tarot cards to decans. And then, um, right. yeah, and then like later discoveries of, uh, or I mean, I guess rediscoveries of, of uh, books like the Picatrix or like deeper dives into like Agrippa and pulling out more imagery associated with the Deccans and the different uh, cards. Um, do you find, absolutely. do you find a lot of, have you seen a lot of overlap there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
the thing I picked up uh, from reading Dorotheus and uh, the common astrological one was uh, that a lot of the modern language that we have around astrology wasn't really present in that old material. Um, there's not really like a relationship in Dorotheus's uh, astrology and uh, the elements, let's say, which is a real popular well, component of both modern and traditional astrology. Wait, not even like but, uh, the, uh, like the the like the cardinal signs and the fire, or you're talking about like the fire signs and the water signs, like Dorotheus doesn't have those? No, he doesn't. He has uh, the triplicity tri- uh, rulers, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a slightly different thing, and it works just fine with the elements. You know, they, they're, they're in perfect harmony with each other when you bring in the elemental system, but uh, he doesn't really discuss the elements anywhere in the Carmen Astrological. And uh, so it's mostly based on the images of okay. the zodiac and uh, the uh, topics of the houses and uh, the images of the glyphs of the uh, planet. So, wait, the images of the glyphs of the planets? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, the, the, the glyph of Mercury. The, uh, those are, right, right. Uh, um, and then would there be a, so there'd be a, a separate image associated with that, or he was focusing mostly on that image itself? So, like, if we're talking about Mercury, it's the little uh, cross. I think Dorotheus and them were probably using different symbols, but the, the idea, the concept is there that there's this symbol that has multi layered uh, visual information embedded in it. Yeah, you can see that sort of, especially in something like Mercury, which, um, just on the surface, looks like a combination of uh, Venus and the Moon. Right, right, right. Um, now, hold on a second. Let's back up just a, a minute and talk about Dorotheus a little bit. Can you give us some background on him? Like, when when was he, and what sort of stuff? W- why was he? Why is he so important to traditional astrology? Uh, the the uh the book he wrote is uh, four, four or five books on astrology, which we have now is the Carmen Astrological, which is a translation of a translation. Oh. But uh, it, he goes back to the roots of astrology. He claimed to have uh, learned his art from uh, the books that are uh, the legendary books of thought or Hermes, you know. Really? And, uh, yeah, that's what he claims in the opening of his book, and uh, he he's, he's like the ground zero for Hellenic astrology as we know it today. So um, he's sort of like um, much, before Ptolemy, or around the same time as Ptolemy? Yeah, before Ptolemy, and before Valens, and before, yeah, Hephaestio, oh. and all those guys. Oh, that's amazing. So so when we go when we go back that far, there's a lot, you find that there's a lot of stuff that's sort of been developed and slapped on top of um, of that sort of system, right? So, like, even things... because uh, Because we couldn't do accurate measurements of, uh, like, uh, minutes and degrees sometimes. You might only be able to get within... Right. So, so, so there were things that were just different. They didn't, they didn't worry so much about, uh, you know, preci- the precision was different. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I find... Uh, attractive about Hellenistic astrology is the uh, the uh, emphasis on uh, uh, poet- poetic relationship and not so much on like mathematic precision. Oh, so with um, 
with the Hellenistic astrology, do you tend to look kind of more at the relationship between um, houses or sort of like broader uh, swaths of the sky instead of like specific degrees then? Right. And... Um, there's a, there's a way to combine quadrant houses with whole sign houses in traditional astrology. They, you know, use the whole signs for topics. Right. And right. use the quadrant base to get a read for the energy level of the planet, I guess is a good way to put it, you know, whether it's succident or, or cadent or, you know, in the angle. So have you been able to use this method of uh, astrology, this sort of like older form or, I don't, I mean, I don't, Calling it an older form is sort of interesting. Astrology, one of the things that's so fascinating about it is there's still a lot of like intuitive reading involved in it. So as it as it goes along and it keeps collecting more and more rules, and you almost sort of want to be like, hold on a second, why are you can't just slap rules on top of here? Like what's what's happening? The thing I find really amazing about Morpheus is is how much is recognizable and how much is still around even in, like, how much of it made it into uh, modern astrology. So it's not really so different, except that it's uh, more image-based. There's not that elemental thing going on, and uh, it's, uh, like, to get a grip on Ptolemy, you might want to have a little bit of Aristotle under your belt, right? Yeah. Um, to get Grip on Dorotheus, uh, basically, if you're familiar with Homer and Hesiod and mythology in general, you're pretty good to go. Oh, that sounds super fascinating. Can you give us maybe, um, like, what's an example? So when you're talking about, like, the, the images out of, like, uh, Hesiod and, and Homer, is are these just, like, straight mythological god forms and god images and stuff? Or are they, like, uh, are, are there, like... Um, uh, Homeric heroes and, and stuff like that showing up? It's mostly the uh, relationships between the Olympians and Titans represented, you know, by the planets and uh, the kind of mythological themes you find in the houses and signs uh, are like a theatrical an- uh, analogy for it, that uh, uh, the houses are uh, topics, you know, they're themes or uh, drama and comedy. And then the signs are, are the settings and the props that you use, the clothes you wear, the roles you take on. And then the planets themselves are the personalities and define the interactions and relationships through their aspects and conjunctions. That, um, that, and is, this is, only that is like the very best... Very image-based. Oh, keep, keep going, keep going. <laughs> it's all very image-based, you know, um, and that's the thing uh, uh, that's interesting about Dorotheus is like, if you're looking at a planet like Saturn, one of the ways uh, Dorotheus determines their dignity is not necessarily, you know, like the element thing is out. But he'll, he'll ask a question like, uh, Saturn likes the human sign. Is Saturn with an animal sign? Is he with a human? Is he with, uh, you know, an object like the scales for Libra hmm. where he's exalted? That's kind of fascinating, and thus uh, we've got Saturn in Aquarius, for instance. Like to come one of the human forms. It's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's the domicile. Um, he's in there. Uh, he really likes being in Aquarius. Yeah, that's really interesting. That that combination of like the um, 
the themes and the setting and the characters is, um, I think, one of the most elegant explanations I've heard for the uh, for the interactions between those those three sets of of uh, astrological themes. You know, the the houses, signs, and planets. Like that makes so much sense. It totally, I could feel it all. Sort it it all started clicking together in my head when you when you uh, described it that way. Awesome. Um, and it kind of, uh, I, I sort of enjoy the fact that it doesn't even have the elements in it. That's kind of cool too, because the, it, it, it again, it just, uh, I feel like a lot of times, you, you know, you just pile on the correspondences and it can kind of muddy up, um, some of the meanings. Yeah. The additional complexities, yeah, can, uh, create a lot of different distractions and things. And I do like kind of a stripped down mode of going about things and practically everything I do from music to tarot. Um, I've recently, a couple of years ago, I converted from the thought deck to the noblesse tarot uh, to Marseille mm-hmm. because it's some little more cut down version of the tarot that hasn't accumulated all of the symbolism and, you know, different layers of metaphysics it just it is what it is and they say what they say oh yeah i mean i just started i just got a thoth deck for the first time um last year and uh, i really haven't used it very much but still you know so like just the other day i was i was waiting for something to happen and i was like oh there's my thoth deck and i started flipping through it and i was like i don't know any of these cards <laughs> they the they're, they're, <laughs> it's a monster, yeah. oh man i mean they're beautiful right but it's like yeah. There's a whole new story going on in every single one of those cards, and they are so busy. They are just so um, full of stuff. And then you know you you know just enough about Crowley or just enough Greek, and you come across something that's just like this direct Crowley reference, and you're just like, ugh. The devil card being a primary example, you know, it's just a big knob joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or uh, I can't remember. I think it was. Um, uh, I'm going to get this wrong because I don't know the Thoth deck very well. But I think it's like the uh, the Ace of Pentacles. I think that actually says uh, Tomega Therion in the background, and you're sort of like, oh, that. I have no idea why that would be in there, and it just feels like a complete departure from my understanding of the Ace of Pentacles, and I really don't want to look it up. <laughs> if you read his book of thought, he'll have an essay about why he put his magical name on the Ace of Pentacles. I honestly, I think it might be too late for me to um, to go back and read any more Crowley. I think I might have already... Ugly uh, gone as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay, Let's let's not... And let's not brag on Crowley too much. I don't want to make anybody cry out there. No, I don't want to leave a valuable part of my experience and where I've been and everything, but um, I'm just I'm living in the 21st century, and he was living in the 19th century. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's a good way to put it. Okay, so, uh, but back to this, um, back to the Hellenistic astrology stuff, the Dorotheus. So, have you found enough material out of Dorotheus that you've been able to do, like, uh, horary or natal chart readings using just Dorotheus's um, material? Yes, absolutely, with uh, natal charts. Horary is a little more iffy. Uh, the final book in this, uh, the Carmen Astrological is on questions, mm-hmm. but it's hard to tell if it's about elections or horary or some kind of hybrid practice. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it could go either way. And uh, basically, the entire art of horary, some people think, has arisen from this tension, this question of whether this is about prediction or about planning. You know, or, or are you trying to answer a question or are you trying to set up the ideal circumstances for your endeavor? Oh, so that kind of all comes out of that last book of Dorotheus where it's hard to see. So, okay, that's sort of fascinating. And what have you, um, so what have you, what has your experience been with that? Have you used it for elections? Um, there's a bit of there, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it shows up in the Picatrix too. So if you read the Picatrix, you probably run across a good bit of Dorotheus. Oh. Um, especially like the, when they talk about images for the planet. And stuff like that. Are those all straight out of Dorotheus? Um, a lot of it is, yeah. There's quite a bit that comes right out of Dorotheus. And definitely with the election, electional rules, we'll see a lot of that stuff in the fourth book. Okay. What, and what about the uh, Deccan images? Do those um, show up in Dorotheus also? Um, you know, I don't think he mentions the Deccans. Oh. Yeah, I guess Deccans would be hard to... I mean, you could still... <laughs> You could still calculate the decans, I suppose, um, but it would be hard to be really precise about them. Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah, that, yeah, really. yeah. Let me check real quick. I want to check on that and see if he mentioned anything about decans. Okay. I don't recall it though. Yeah, there's no mention of the decans in the end that season. I was yeah. thinking maybe something in the introduction would show up. Uh, the Deccans either, you know, uh, back then it might have been a secret. Oh, yeah, that's very true. It could have been a secret. And, I mean, even um, even the uh, the images of the Deccans could have been secret, too. Although, Absolutely. Yeah, I guess um, it's it's just really funny sort of watching the progression of... Um, of electional astrology and and magical images associated with astrology because they sort of go through um, more complexity and changes and evolution as well. So you see like one set in the Picatrix and then like a really similar set in Agrippa, but then, um, you know, just having images for the planets and images for the decans isn't enough because Agrippa is then like, oh, and here's a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So again, you see just like more complexity just being like piled on top of each other all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's uh, a thing that seems to happen in occultism is as time goes on and more people, you know, practice something in a tradition, a lineage, more and more things get kind of layered on top of it. In some ways, it's extremely useful. In other ways, it can be a bit of a detriment. You know, it creates a high barrier of entry. It does. It, I've been thinking about that a lot myself. I guess I sort of, uh, I can't remember where I came across it, but it was sort of this um, uh, idea of like you, you when you're teaching stuff, when you're teaching anything, you should teach to inspire and not necessarily to instruct. And I think a lot of times mm-hmm. with, um, with these occult traditions, we end up having like people's personal systems or personal ways of doing things, uh, you know, maybe taught to one person then taught to another person then all of a sudden they're like oh this is canon we just have to write this down and nobody ever gets to change it again <laughs> and i and that's law 
Yeah, it's and it's got to be what happened. It's got to be what happens with a lot of those images too, uh, because I think that you know it's silly that we don't have uh, updated magical images that sort of match our times. Like, do our do our images of Mars always run around with like you know helmets and broadswords, or are, is there right. eventually? Yeah, whereas Mars now like. A, where Mars totally he you know Mars today should look like a the cover of a Rambo movie you know just sort of like deranged and, right. and sweaty and muddy and with like two machine guns or something like that and red bandanas <laughs> and maybe you know uh, that would be definitely worth experimenting with maybe people are doing that I don't know I still Think, yeah. uh, well, I've often thought that comic books are kind of an expression of this sort of thing. You know, you can see a lot of this kind of mythological imagery, the sort of spewing out of comic books. You know, just like indiscriminately, almost. It's pretty. It's fun stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, have you? So like, uh, I mean, Dark Side would be Saturn, probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> And Superman would probably be, have to be Jupiter then, or Apollo, or Apollo. Yeah, oh, good one. And get his powers from the sun. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's kind of that's a good one. The Justice League's a lot of fun that way because the parallels are pretty. You know, almost two on the nose. <laughs> yeah, this uh, exercise totally reminds me of like you know the the classic OTO way of teaching um, the tree of life where they're sort of like, here are the sephirot, uh, go out into the world and assign things to them and you'll learn the correspondences. But um, it's almost sort of like, uh, there's there's almost sort of like a level of naivete there because what we really should be doing is like finding out how the images of our world, like the images that are pressed on us all the time, how those are tied to older images and older traditions and like how... Ah, shit, it's young, isn't it? It's, it's his holy archetype. Thing. Yeah, yeah, archetype. <laughs> the images that precede language. Right, we're never going to escape young. He's like, he's here forever now. <laughs> <laughs> Just embedded in a landscape. Ah, he's like the new Hermes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Be so, happy with that alchemical yeah. comparison. <laughs> yeah, he's... Uh, he's he probably is wherever he is now. He's probably like, yes, finally. Um, so then, right. you you came across Dorotheus pretty recently, right? So your your astrological studies are, are fairly new, um, and you were just yes, yeah. yeah, and you were just saying that you'd you'd switched to the Tarot de Marseille from uh, the Thoth deck, but like, how did you get mm-hmm. onto the Thoth train? Like, what led you what led you from Rider Waite Smith to Thoth? Oh, well, when I was young and angry, I was a hot young Thelemite during the 90s. And, uh, Excellent. Yeah, punk rock, chaos, magic, the whole nine yards. <laughs> Liberty Spikes, Mohawks. Oh, yeah, you know, dark hair, leather, you oh, know. Man. <laughs> Jeans that had never, ever, ever been washed. Yeah. Right, yeah. A whole lot of pictures and, and memories I'll never live down. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, so, so then thoth stuck with you for quite a while, right? Because tarot de Marseille—that was something that you started doing pretty recently, too. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think the reason why I stuck with thoughts for so long is because of the geometry in the deck. Lady Frida Harris did a uh, big study on geometry to prepare for painting that deck. And uh, I believe she probably spent some time at the Terre de Marseille, too, because just, there's all, you know, there's too many similarities for it to be, uh, you know, coincidental. And uh, she, she uh, I don't want to say she copied a lot of the geometry. I think she was inspired by the geometry. And even in some cases, uh, uh, brought her own thing to what had been established previously in the tradition and, and created her own elevation of the tarot that is uh, independent of Crowley's input. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess I could see that in there. I mean, you know, you don't really you see this such a unique kind of approach to figure, and I mean, the, the geometrical stuff is like super obvious throughout it. Um, it's been, uh, in fact, my my latest sort of like uh, trips through the Thoth Tarot have really been making me think again about um, uh, an artist that I think has been influenced by them pretty he- by the Thoth deck pretty heavily do you know about uh oh jesse moynihan he was one of the um illustrators on adventure time and he kind of went on to do his own web comic um well i'll i'll send you a link later i think the web comic is called forming but the artwork in the comic is like really distinctive it's got all of these like strangely colored humanoids with like geometric heads and bodies and doing all of these weird things and the backdrops are just incredibly strange and um i mean i love the artwork i thought it was really idiosyncratic and then when i started looking at the thoth deck i was like oh there's an influence <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, uh, the, look at the trumps in the thoth deck and and look at the, the mirroring and there's a lot of those uh the marseille tricks going on with the trumps in particular okay i'm gonna uh, yeah, that sounds yeah. really fascinating. I'm going to definitely spend some more time with it. It's just a, uh, it's daunting, you know. Um, I hear people talk, mm-hmm. talking about this when they get into just like Rider weight tarot, and they're sort of like, oh, there's too many symbols, there's too much stuff to learn, and and uh, and it's hard for me to remember back to you know my first Rider weight experience, which was also in the '80s, where I'm just sort of like, well, I mean, I guess you just have to spend 20 years staring at the cards, and then maybe they'll make sense. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, the Thoth deck definitely feels that way. So, I, I mean, I can understand like a reluctance to give it up. It wouldn't just be like the beauty of the art, but the amount of the amount of like time and energy you invested into learning the deck must have, mm-hmm. you know, it, it sort of turns it into one of those tools. Like, why would you put it down? Well, there was a compatible spirit too. There's a like a spirit to the deck that's very rebellious. That's uh, very kind of hot kind of has a quality of insurrection to it, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really appealed to me for a very long time. Um, I've kind of mellowed out of it as I approach 50, and I think that's a big part of it, too, is I'm just, you know, I'm not on the front lines like I used to be. You know, I'm not, like, in the, in the mix like that so much anymore. So something a little quieter, something a little calmer, a little more stripped down is a little more suitable for where I'm at in life these days. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, through our conversations, I've sort of just always imagined you 
like sitting on the front porch smoking a corn cob pipe and uh <laughs> playing a banjo while like alligators walk around um so then uh do you between tarot and astrology um which one do you feel i mean i feel personally like they they kind of answer different types of questions right like absolutely like we talk about fortune telling and there's um there's fortune telling that is random sortilege right like tarot where you're shuffling and something totally random is coming up and then there's something which is just this like vast interconnected machine where um it's just the complexity of it is what is what keeps you from knowing what's happening next but it's still like you know predictable um like astrology yeah so so you know even when we talk about something like fortune telling that term can be a little misleading because we really got to figure out like what does fortune even mean like do you I know you have thoughts on this. We've talked about this before, but with astrology, how hard and fast are the our our predictions, our elections? Like, what what is it? Uh, what is it actually telling us? It's given us. Uh, it's, that's a that's a big one, isn't it? It's it a. Is. Uh, <laughs> It's going to be our first 40-hour episode. The way I use astrology, the way I use it is, uh, is it's, it's like a big map of cycles, and it gives me the weather, the lay of the land, you know, um, <clears throat> the way to look at it, I guess, is if I was thinking about building something that would tell me the correct spot to build it by elevation and the water table, and, you know, this is a flood zone, and Mm-hmm. Yada yada yada. Whereas, like terror is like a chatty, conversational friend. You know, you can ask it pretty much anything, and you'll throw out a spread, and you're like, "Wait, this doesn't even look like it has anything to do with the question I asked." It's going off on tangents, and it wants to talk about other things. It's so like I tend a- to combine. A tarot is kind of like a, a nosy friend with ADHD. Right. And I find that if I combine these two things, if I look around and I go, okay, astrology is giving me the lay of the land, it's giving me the weather and everything, and tarot has just a ton of advice for me. And so I'm going to store that spread in my memory. I'm going to hold on to it in my memory, and I'm going to keep an eye on the weather which is, and, and the, the lay of the land, which is the astrology. And uh, as I move through the day, and as I move through different situations, I'll find that the terror spread will pop up in my memory at certain moments, and I'll be like, oh, that's what that card was about. And so it becomes a very situational kind of practice. And that's just purely reading for me. You know how complex it can be reading for yourself. Oh, yeah. Nothing like reading for another person. Uh, the dialogue that I have with Terry, I mainly read for myself. So it's a very personal and abstract kind of dialogue. And when I have an occasional friend come by and ask for a reading, um, it always strikes me how different the two modes are. And the different ways I have to, you know, work with the cards and work with the question and, and work with the other person in a, in a face-to-face reading. 
in a in a face to face reading, do you um, do you ever feel like when you're doing uh, fortune telling for another person that you get uh, I don't know like insight or something that is more intuitive than logical like do you get uh like what are what are some of the things the the different feelings that you notice in in reading for other people sometimes i feel like i'm just uh sort of uh, a conduit you know for the news i guess is the best way to put it um, I believe when I'm engaging in fortune telling that there's a certain engagement with the news there, just like when I play music or I try to write something. Okay. You know? And uh, that at times uh, I've become maybe not necessarily a conduit or a channel, but a partner in, in uh, drawing something out that I couldn't do on my own. Right. That makes sense. So it's sort of like the images of tarot uh, have a message and you're not necessarily you're not necessarily like a speaker attached to a radio as much as you are like a sign language interpreter or something like that yeah yeah that's a pretty cool way to put it do you um when you're reading for other people do you tend to uh include astrology in tarot uh readings um not necessarily uh Sometimes if, uh, like, I know their natal chart, it might come up. But uh, generally speaking, uh, somebody asks me for a, uh, a tarot card reading. It's pretty quick and to the point kind of thing. You know, they want to know what's going to happen with their job or with the relationship or something like that. And uh, I tend to just kind of dive into it and handle it on those terms. Um, because... The thing that really stuns me about astrology and the thing that really just sort of hooked me from the beginning is how intimate a natal chart can be. Yeah. And I've seen things looking at people's natal charts sometimes that I kind of wish I could unsee, you know, because it's, it's not like I'm seeing horrible things or great things or anything like that it's just like sometimes there's a mystery to getting to know a person you know and uh, and uh, there's just a level that that kind of sudden intimacy is a bit much for me sometimes I think I know what you're saying I think I've actually had that experience with tarot also where I've where I've done a reading and I've looked at it, and I've been like, "Oh, this, t- this, you know, it might just even be three cards." And I see something in there, I'm like, oh, "I do not want to talk to a yeah. stranger about this. Like, this is not something that uh-huh. they they don't want me to know. You know, this is like right. they, they just pay me. Yeah, <laughs> they don't want to be freaked out about this. They they're just getting some entertainment and a glass of wine, and they don't need somebody being like, "Well, let's talk about your addiction issues." <laughs> <laughs> or something like that, but it's. I, I guess. Uh, I guess I don't know enough about natal chart reading and astrology to to have had that experience, but I could definitely see how it might be present. Um, which is one of the reasons why I'm really careful about who I give my natal chart to. Like you, mm-hmm. you yeah, see yeah. people on the internet just throwing them everywhere, and I'm sort of like, new. I'm no, not. Uh, Twitter. <laughs> oh, Twitter. <laughs> like the number of threads in Astro Twitter where people are giving away their, like, you know, all of their placements stuff. It's it's uh-huh. it's kind of crazy to see. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, in addition to astrology, okay, so then I guess one of the questions about astrology is like how, so it it acts like a machine. It it looks at the universe as a machine. It looks at everything, and th- this is oh I I'm I'm having like I'm having a weird thought here about Descartes, which we won't get there. Let's let's never talk about that. Day. But um, but this sort of like this sort of like mechanical universe where everything is uh, like the reason that the the reason you can predict stuff or the reason you can you can even read a chart is because everything is sort of like interconnected in this. Um, this ongoing chain. So like Ptolemy who would be looking at Aristotle would be like, Oh, it's the, you know, great chain of cause and effect. It's the causal chain that, you know, goes back to the prime mover. But, um, Dorotheus wouldn't have had that particular, uh, view of things, but would have had. So how, how did Dorotheus, like, did, does he ever discuss sort of like his philosophy between, or behind, like, why the stars work the way they do, or why the planets seem to have their particular roles? <laughs> he does not. He doesn't? He just lays out the techniques. He says, this is the way it was given to me. These things mean this. That means that, you know. This is the star of that. That's the star of this, you know. It's, it's very matter-of-fact and laid out. Oh, that's so. That's so strange. So then, it's weird. It just appears out of nowhere. It's just blam. Wow. And is this sort of like the? Is Dorotheus kind of the oldest uh, Hellenistic astrology stuff that we have? As far as I know, yeah, it's pretty much the uh, where we get natal astrology from before. Dorotheus, I'm pretty sure astrology was more of a uh, state apparatus, you know, a system of sky omens for determining what's going to happen with the dynasty and the kingdom kind of thing. It didn't really have any relevance for your everyday person except for how living in that kingdom is going to affect your life, you know. And then, and, uh, then one day this crazy and, Greek comes yeah, along and he's like, here we go. <laughs> Yeah, here it is. Everybody has a soul. Everybody has a purpose. Everybody has a place. <laughs> yeah. There's great democratization of fate and fortune, I guess. Well, that's actually kind of a really cool way to look at it, where he took this, um, he took this like really lofty uh, practice and sort of brought it down to the level where it could be pract- it could be used for individuals and, and people, but it's still just sort of like... And I, and I love the fact that he claims to have... Got, he, so he claims to have received it from like the... The books of Thoth, the books of Thoth, right? Like that, or he was taught by the person that learned it from him. He's either, I think, he's third in the chain of transmission, which where he places himself. Okay, that's fascinating. It's just, uh, yeah, like I'm, uh, I'm. St- so he and he doesn't discuss the yeah, philosophy. No, not really. It just shows up, and he's like, you know, this, this is the. Uh, planet of Aries, and this is the planet of Aphrodite, and, you know, this sign, and that sign, and this house, and that house, and he just goes right in talking about angles, and houses, and <laughs> the whole nine yards. Wow. Uh, I gotta read this. I really want this book now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I highly recommend it. It's 
fascinating. I think it's one of the books that you've been uh, recommending to me. Every time I ask you a question, you're like, oh, well, in this book, in this book. And I'm like, well, my list is just, it's only getting longer. <laughs> um, well, so, uh, okay, so then, so he doesn't really discuss the philosophy, so so we still, but we still have this sort of concept that comes out of uh, Hellenistic astrology that, like, because of the way everything is arranged like a giant machine or because of the the sort of like causal effect of all of this we almost don't have say in the way certain things play out like some things are just always going to have happened that way yeah that's the state element of it and um and you, that's upsetting to people isn't it yeah, yeah, the state and fortune aspects are hard for a lot of people to get their heads around. Um, we live in a society that's, you know, raises us to believe that we can be anything we want. Mm-hmm. You know, we can achieve anything if we put the proper amount of energy and thought behind it. Oh. And uh, I, sim- I tend to agree with the ancients and that that's simply not true. Uh, I don't think there is. Let's say, for example, uh, I tried to be the president of the United States of America. I don't think that there was ever a path before me due to the circumstances of my birth and uh, all kinds of factors that we can call fate that I can't change. You know that uh, you know my life led me to uh, practice music and perform music and uh, learn a handful of trade skills and uh, practice magic and astrology and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way Um, whereas I think the thing that people get irritated about is that that fact that you know well no you can't really be anything you want Um, now that doesn't mean that there isn't latitude you know I I look at fortune as kind of like the wiggle room and the cracks of fate you know and uh, some people have way more fortune in their life than fate. Some people have way more fate in their life than fortune. We all get a mix. And uh, it all depends on the circumstances of our birth, you know, which is a time and a place. Right. And that's astrology. Yeah, it's funny um, because, you know, even if you don't take astrology into account, the time and place of our birth has a lot to do with how we end up too. And we actually talk about yep. this in popular culture all the time. You know, we assign people generations. So, you know, like we're Generation X. And because we're Generation X, yep. we are supposed to act this particular way or have this particular outlook for our fortunes. And so we we still do it. And people seem to embrace yep. that just fine. Sometimes being really mm-hmm. proud of it. Uh, or just, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that whole thing about, like, you know, we can be anything we want, uh, I think a big part of that is just kind of, like, the lie of the American dream. Right. You know, this concept that, like, with enough, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, you, too, can be a billionaire. You, too, can be one of the 1%. But we know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's ob- it becomes yeah. more and more obvious all the time. That's, yeah, that's exactly where I stand with it. Um, so that's sort of fascinating. Like it's kind of, uh, it's sort of honest. It's this level of honesty that's sort of saying like, no, this is just how, you know, sometimes this is, this is the hand you're dealt and you got to make the most of it if you can. But also, you know, uh, 
it's also making me think of like stuff that we're that that like the medical medical science is learning like sometimes you're predisposed mm-hmm. to die young or get cancer or have perfect abs or or whatever you know right right yeah well that's right yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it is rough and uh, i think it illustrates why so many of uh, the traditional ancient astrologers were stuck because you know you spend all your day looking at these charts and thinking about your fate and fortune and the fate and fortune of everybody around you it does create a certain outlook but you're like well that sucks but at least I can be happy that I know that this thing that sucks is coming my way because I can prepare a, an appropriate response to the situation, whatever it may be. You know, and I can at least prepare to act in a way that won't dishonor me in my memory or undo the things that I've worked for. You know, I can minimize the damage. I can control the impact. I can turn my angle this way so that I land instead of crashing, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Do you think that that sort of approach is what led to um, stuff like astrological remediation uh, or even astrological talismans? Um, yeah, probably so. And, and the remediation stuff is interesting. Like, I gather it's huge in the uh, geotish, I believe it's pronounced, uh, the Indian astrology. We have a lot of different mantras and just different things you can do to uh, try and avoid your astrological destiny, your fate, you know, <laughs> or at least remediate it. And uh, in the Greek material, you don't really see any of that. And uh, at best, in the Arabic material I've looked at, it's like reference. You know, it's 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 uh, it's. Uh, they, they obliquely reference it because of uh, the cultural dictates against uh, magic and that sort of thing. And then so they, they don't say things like, uh, you know, Venus's uh, color is green and she likes copper and yada, yada, yada. But they don't say, you know, if you want to remediate Venus, put on some green clothes and wear copper jewelry. Oh, that's funny. That's um, so. Is that mostly what the re- remediation practices are in um, in Hellenistic or in I guess in Western astrology, the the non geodic stuff? That that's what it seems to be to me. It's like uh, you know, uh, basically, it's a uh, uh, you know, you align yourself with the myth, and when you align with yourself with the myth, you uh, things tend to play out in that manner. Um, and that's yeah. Ah. It's sympathetic so, magic. It's like attracts like. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's like what I find uh, is to be like the most operative stuff I've used in the Picatrix is the sympathetic stuff, the image magic in book one and book four and that sort of thing. And uh, something we mentioned earlier about the differences between the, the imagery and say the Picatrix and the imagery in Agrippa. Hell, you have. The, differences in the imagery in book one of the Picatrix and book four of the Picatrix. So like they can't even stay super consistent within the same grimoire, you know. I still and think... And what that tells me is that there's like a room, there's a latitude, it's a language, and it's not so exact that we can bring out new images. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that... Um you know, when I've done astrological magic, uh, sometimes the image that I use comes to me 
um, in a dream or a vision or something. You know, I mean, the right. some, some of my most um, effective uh, talismans, you know, where I've been sort of like, you know, spent like the day before the election kind of preparing everything and getting ready. Uh, you know, that night I'll have a mm-hmm. dream where there will be an image where I'm like, oh, that's perfect. I'm just using that. That's the image. I'm set now. Absolutely. I've had those kind of experiences too. It's just, it's unavoidable when you start, you know, uh, dealing with these images, putting them in your memory, putting them in your mind, and associating them with things in your life and in the universe around you. Yeah, it becomes a, uh, it becomes a language and, uh, they interact with you as much as you interact with them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess, um, I don't. I don't know that I've necessarily always had that kind of uh, experience with um, tarot imagery, but maybe maybe I did a lot early on, and I just wasn't paying attention because I didn't know what to look for. Or maybe it's something that mm-hmm. you know, since I don't you know focus on as much now, it doesn't um, it doesn't crop up in. I mean, I guess I don't do a whole lot of tarot based magic. See, I was about to say, I think there's a thing we do a lot around the South with their uh, cooking spreads. We just sort of like, instead of asking a question, you say, okay, well, I want this thing. So you pull out some cards to describe that thing you want. You lay those out on your altar, your space, you know, and uh, uh, you frame it however you like, you know, and uh, basically you cook that tarot spread and try to bring those things into your life. And so it, it gives you a way of looking at the images in a, in a slightly different direction of looking at them for, you know, like, well, how do I want to activate something in my life? What is the card I would use to activate it? Instead of receiving a card and saying, what does this card mean for me right now in the context of the question I'm asking? That, and uh, yeah. it, it creates a sort of mindset where the world around you is full of tarot cards after a while. So you basically use the reading as a basis for the image, then? Mm-hmm, yeah. Hmm. It, it's, it's interesting because it's like a, just kind of a local uh, thing that, you know, kind of comes out of the southern practices, you know, hunting practices and hoodoo and voodoo and all that sort of thing. And uh, it, it's a sympathetic practice that is, directly in line with a lot of the things you see in the Picatrix. And uh, it's like, we know that the Picatrix is basically a recent resurgence. And this is something people have been doing with their cards in the South for quite a while. So you you grew up in the South, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Did you see very much of that sort of like cunning work and root work um, around when you were growing up? Or was it... I mean, as somebody who who didn't grow up down there, I it's hard for me to uh, you know read about it and be like, and and have any sort of understanding of how common it is or how uh, prevalent it ends up being. When I was growing up, there you know still cultural barriers between uh, you know white people and black people, so I wasn't exposed to a lot of hoodoo stuff. But it's it's sort of in the air down here. You're going to get exposed to it one way or the other, especially if you're interested in these sorts of things. Wow. And uh, cunning practices, yeah, I saw, you know, there's quite a bit of exposure to it when I was growing up. The well that uh, was, um, you know, that provided my house with water when I was a kid was Dow's. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was my grandparents' well, both sets of grandparents, maternal and paternal. 
um, you know, real common for people back then to just go out and douse up a well. And, yeah. uh, you know, different kinds of practices, but, um, you know, and uh, stories that my granddad told me, you know, and things that uh, he told me about, you know, that have a, kind of a, a cunning man ring to him. You know, I wouldn't say he was a cunning man or anything like that, but just being that kind of person that grew up in the woods. And uh, lived in a time in Alabama before there was really any electricity or anything like that. Right. So he, he experienced the lifestyle that has pretty much disappeared from our corner of the world. And uh, he definitely had a relationship with the land and the nature and, and, and the sky that uh, is, uh, I'm still in awe of, and I still try to call up and, and see if I can. Uh, participate in that with them still to this day yeah that's really um that's really amazing to hear i guess uh you know i've seen i know that there's a there's been water dousing i've heard about water dousing like out in the really rural like the hills of oregon and stuff like there's definitely Mm -hmm. kind of uh um backwoods culture and stuff going on out there but you know they're they're private and really distant from uh civilization so it's hard to it's hard to know exactly what's going on but it would be fascinating like in a hundred years to sort of see what kind of uh cunning man type uh traditions have been developing you know in in the rural parts of uh of the west coast like because there's going to be some weird stuff out there yeah yeah uh the stuff doesn't go away if anything uh you know recent events are teaching us that you know uh as uh, the world gets more complex and more turbulent, the more people like us seem to just start coming out of the woodwork, you know, and that's true in the cities, that's true in the urban areas, you know, all over the world, basically. Yeah, it's it's nice to see, I guess I, uh, for me, it's really nice to see such a huge... um, uh, amount of interest in the generation after us, you know, like the people who are currently in their twenties and thirties and how excited they're getting mm-hmm. about all of this weird occult stuff. Um, and I guess part yeah. of it is like, there's more than ever available. There's especially the old stuff, you know, it's not just, we're not mm-hmm. just reading Mathers and Crowley and, you know, the, your collection of like seventies Wiccans. It's, it's, right. it's all sorts of like, new innovative things and really old things that we just never had access to. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty Absolutely. fun to watch. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. I'm, I'm really inspired by a lot of the things I see the young people out there doing. And it's, yeah, really happy to see it. Really happy to see all of this, you know, coming back, people talking about astrology, you know, in public, mm-hmm. on TV and stuff. <laughs> oh yeah or even um you know like uh sometimes you come across some really good conversations between people looking at traditional astrology and modern astrologers and sort of like the conversation you know the arguments they have and like um people actually having to like think about this and be like hold on a second how much you know, how how passionate do i feel about this particular view uh that's just awesome okay wait so let's i, I i'm i'm super i'm just 
I'm really fascinated by Dorotheus. I totally am going to read this and then we'll do another conversation where we just get so nerdy about it that nobody will be able to follow us. <laughs> um, but so like after Dorotheus, you had uh, Hellenistic astrology continued to kind of advance and become more complex and have more stuff going on. And when, yep. when did you start to see stuff like... Um, you know, strict aspects or really careful, like by the degree measurements, like when did you start to know, you know, for instance, every planet has like a degree of exaltation in its, in its sign of exaltation. Like when did that sort of stuff start cropping up? Um, I suspect the exact degrees of exaltation. Um, I'm not sure if that's medieval or Renaissance. It might be Arabic tradition. I haven't run across that material yet in the Arabic tradition there, but, that's when you start seeing a lot of the precision showing up, and that's when you really, uh, that's when horary becomes a distinct and individual developed practice within astrology, is inside the Arabic practice. Right. And I guess there was also um, difficulty in really precise um, prediction of where a planet would be, too. You'd, they'd, you'd, you'd pretty much have to guess. I mean, we didn't. Right. We didn't start having like really accurate uh, anything for for that sort of stuff until, you know, what like the fifteen nineties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's got to be that. That must really Absolutely. change the way astrology used to work. Absolutely. Well, in older material, you see a lot more emphasis on aspect by sign and precise aspects by degree are reserved usually for bonification or malediction. Okay. Wow. And then, um, yeah, I guess I, I talked to Ryan Butler about uh, this concept of sort of like um, the aspects tended to come out of this concept of like the planets being able to see each other. Um, right. And it was definitely more house-based than like precise angles. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, the visual ray theory, and there were seven visual rays that defined the seven aspects of the planet emitted. Uh, you can see those rays on the Statue of Liberty, her cubal crown, that's what that is. Oh, really? Huh. I'll have to take a look. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> now there's an image for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's and, uh, uh, that that kind of like tradition of having um, national images, um I think it's super fascinating, and I don't know that a lot of folks put a lot of uh, thought into it nowadays, but um, almost every uh, country on the planet, especially ones that are more than, you know, 150 years old, has an image associated with it. Absolutely. They, they have their own national deity, you know, like uh, Columba or right. Columbia. Yeah, we've got the Columbia. Mm-hmm. But then in addition, in addition to Columbia, we've got the Lady Liberty, we've got Uncle Sam, yeah, yeah that's yep. uh, or like over in Mount Rushmore. Yeah, Mount Rushmore, which is what some sort of weird four-headed rock giant. <laughs> yeah, weird four-headed rock giant. It's a vandalism of an ancient sacred site. Yeah, Ugh, God, that's like the best image we've got. <laughs> uh, well, Alan, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm super glad that. Um, I'm super glad that you brought up Dorotheus and that we were able to talk about uh, talk about his work so much. Um, that was a lot. 
Yeah, uh, I feel like, do you want to invite all of the uh, Arnamancy listeners to join us on uh, Lunar Cry and tell us how Absolutely. crazy we sound? <laughs> all right. Uh, well, uh, well, Lunar Cry is a Discord chat, and it's full of um, occultists and uh, astrologers. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Freemasons, weird conspiracies, not weird conspiracies. Uh, all all sorts of great stuff. So there will be an invitation link in the show notes to this episode, and you can go down there and come and find and us. Please stop by and say hi. Yeah, yeah. Um, Al, uh, Alan is one of the uh, moderators over there, and he just goes by Drake because it turns out that's his last name, Alan Drake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Alan. I'm totally going to just ramble a little bit and stop recording. <laughs> Awesome, man. It's been great talking to you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. One of my favorite podcasts. It's like a dream come true. Aw, dang. Well, I'm not going to stop recording until after I get that part. <laughs> right, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy Podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.